We are in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 20. Sorry, that was kind of cool. Yeah, Lord, what is it? Um, uh, Verses 10 through 20. This is a paragraph that's a concluding paragraph for this whole book. It's not to be abstracted from the rest of Ephesians, it's really a way to understand and apply the whole letter. So have that in mind. We're going to read verses 10 through 20 because it's been a little while since we're in it. But I'm going to focus on verse 17 the first half of verse 17 for this message. But let's, uh, let's listen to God's Word as it is read. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the Gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. God's Word from Ephesians 6, 10-20. Guys, we live in a world that increasingly feels at times like it's coming apart at the seams. We watch major world powers and worldviews vying for dominance in the world, vying for dominance right now in the Middle East and beyond. As a result, we're watching whole cities and villages being destroyed. We watch young children subject to the horrors of war and death. Refugees are inundating countries. Terrorism has been brought to our very doorsteps. Violence seems to fill the media of all sorts. Violence of all sorts. We are experiencing massive cultural change related to some of the technologies like social media and the internet and just a shift in people's worldview. As well as massive cultural change related to the rejection of Christian values and Uh, The Christian values as the basis for our ethics, sexual and otherwise. Our economy, at times, there is anemic at times, often unstable, seemingly unreliable. We watch weather records be broken one after another. Add to all this a presidential election that features a combined favorability rating for the two candidates well over 100%. We haven't seen something like this since Lincoln ran against Douglas before the Civil War. The sum total of all these crises is a a strong sense of just things 
being out of whack, unstable, a, a dystopia. Like something at the beginning of a post-apocalyptic movie, right before all that seemed good and stable comes unraveled. Have you felt that? Have you felt that recently? Are you left wondering if there is anything stable? If there's any place that's safe? Any solid ground to stand on? I've felt like that at times. Imagine you have as well. This passage and the truths in it, in particular for today, verse 17, teaches us something that changes all this. It comes as God's remedy for us, for people living in an unstable world. This verse points to the fact that God gives us something in Christ that guarantees us safety. That guarantees us a safe place. That guarantees us really eternal safety. A safety that's more substantial than we could ever imagine and more enduring than any other we would ever experience. And this eternal safety is key in our battle with spiritual evil. The sense, the understanding of this eternal safety is key. That's why it's here in God's Word. Here's what I want us to learn today from the Word. A way to summarize verse 17 and really other aspects of Scripture this way. We successfully resist evil. We successfully resist evil by remembering and absorbing into our identities that we are eternally safe in Christ. We successfully resist evil by remembering and absorbing into our very identities that we are eternally safe in Christ. That's what I'm going to talk about this morning. I'm going to use that statement really and do it in reverse order. Talking about being eternally safe, talking about remembering and absorbing, and talking about successfully resisting evil. So, verse 17 tells us, take the helmet of salvation. Verse 17, first part, take the helmet of salvation. This idea of the helmet of salvation is elsewhere in Scripture. We can find other places where it's mentioned. Actually, 1 Thessalonians 5.8. I think we have these verses to put up. It mentions the same thing. Paul is speaking to his friends in Thessalonica. And he says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For a helmet, put on the hope of salvation. So, very similar. A little different here that it's the hope of salvation. It's the expectation of the fullness of salvation. In Isaiah, this is also mentioned. So in Thessalonians, Paul's telling the, the, his friends to put on this helmet that's the hope of salvation. In Isaiah 59, we have God Himself putting on a helmet. He puts on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped Himself in zeal as a cloak. So in Isaiah, God Himself is putting on the helmet of salvation, but He, in that, He is actually accomplishing salvation for His people. So this idea is there, there in Scripture, and, and that's what Paul is drawing from here. He's also drawing from the image, we, we've seen this before, of the Roman soldier who was competent to stand and fight alongside his buddies because he was fully arrayed in all this armor. And the picture of a Roman soldier with his helmet on and what that meant. But, but what does it mean that it's the helmet of salvation? What, what is salvation? 
We use that word, right? We talk about salvation. We talk about being saved. And maybe you've asked people or been asked, are you saved? But sometimes we wonder, saved? what does that mean? Saved from what? What was the danger? What was the problem that I had to be rescued from? What does it mean to be saved? What, is it, what does salvation mean? Well, salvation is simply this, just the word, what the word means. It's, it's the state of safety. It's being safe. It's the state of being in a safe place of safety. And so we might say this is the helmet of safety. No, it's not a safety helmet. It's a helmet that represents the state of being safe. Of living in safety. Of salvation. Of, of rescue. This idea of rescue, we use that often. I think in our culture, that's a, a better way to say it perhaps. Because people understand when you say rescue, there was some danger you were in and you get rescued. It's this state of permanent rescue. But, but that begs the question, well, what was the danger, right? Well, what was the danger? What do I need to be rescued from? Why are we even talking about salvation? Well, again, this paragraph is a summary and application of this whole letter. So let's look back in the letter to the Ephesians and see how this idea of salvation is talked about and what the the state before salvation was. So, Ephesians 2, verse 1. Great place to start. There's other places we go in uh, Ephesians, by the way, to talk about salvation. But chapter 2, verse 1, it says, speaking about us in our natural state, it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the state. That's the state that we're in naturally. That's the state that we're in that is the dangerous place. That's, that's what we're rescued from right there. Those four verses. And all that kind of comes with that. In our natural state, we were dead. We were spiritually dead to God, that is. In our trespasses and sins. Trespasses and sins are, are ways that we've transgressed. Ways we've gone against God's plan and God's ways. The, at the core of that is a heart that says, I don't want God and I don't believe God. I'm not going to put my faith there. I'm going to put it in myself. I'm going to put it in other places. And when your faith is oriented that way, you will naturally live contrary to God's ways. It's the disposition and the lifestyle of, of choosing not to rely on God and always obey Him, but to rely on self and rely on the world and rely on other things and follow the way of the world. And, and then in that state, in that disposition, in that lifestyle, you and I were or are dead spiritually dead. And we are separated from God in a spiritual death. And it says here that in that place we followed the course of this world. We, we just follow along with the world. With the world in its brokenness. The world with its lies. It's, the, the world certainly has good in it, but the corruption of the world here it means the worldliness of life, humanity, culture apart from God. We just follow along the course of this world. Not only that, but we are subject to the devil and his minions, though we may not know it. We're controlled by 
other things and we, and we follow what our natural, broken, sinful humanity wants. That's our state. That's our natural state. That's where you were or are. That's what God's Word says. We might not like that. But God's Word is true. It's the reality. We're broken. We're spiritually dead apart from Him. And in that sad state, we are by very nature children of wrath. Wow. Talk about a message that we don't in our culture want to hear. Don't call me a child of wrath. That's what God's Word calls us. Our biggest problem isn't political or cultural or social or even relational turmoil, as bad as those things may be. Our biggest problem is ourselves. And where that puts us before a good and holy and all-powerful God. We put ourselves in trouble before a God who's good and holy and just. We make ourselves God's enemies and we deserve what we get from Him. He's only just. He's only good. He, he's not out to somehow you know, torture and harm people like He needs to do that. The reason that we're children of wrath, the reason that we are children of His just wrath is because of our rebellion against Him. Choosing our own way. Our self-reliance, our self-righteousness. Thinking that somehow we can present ourselves worthy of Him and worthy before others. Our self-determination and falling in our sin, all these things put us in this place of grave danger. And God must respond to us in justice. So that's our state we're in, left to ourselves. Talk about an unstable place. Talk about danger. Talk about needing a rescue. There's no greater danger we could be in than to be an enemy of God Himself. There's not a worse scenario than God's looming just wrath hanging over us. There's not a greater instability than to be outside His love and protection. There's no worse place to be. There's no more dangerous place to be. There's no more unstable place to be than in that place. But that's not the end of the story. Verse 4 of chapter 2 says, But God. But God. Thank God that there's more to the story. It's not just about us and our lostness and our sin and our rebellion and our foolishness and our emptiness. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been rescued. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, you are safe. And raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's more to the story. There's rescue. There's safety here. He has made us alive even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We are alive because He has worked. It doesn't say in verse 4, but I, but we figured things out. But we reformed our lives. But we decided to believe. It doesn't say that, does it? But God, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together in Christ. He did the work. He does the rescue. He breaks into our lives in our deadness, in our lostness, and rescues us. He comes in and and brings safety to us. He comes in through the, the power of the Gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit as we hear this wonderful offer of forgiveness and eternal life. In Christ. This wonderful offer of Christ giving His own life, shedding His blood on the cross to pay for our sins, to, to pay the just penalty we deserve to pay because of all that craziness that we pursue, all sin and trespasses. The wonder that Christ has given Himself that all who believe would be forgiven and counted in Him, forgiven and counted righteous counted acceptable, treated as if we had lived the life Christ lived simply because we trust in Him and welcomed into the family. That's an incredible offer of rescue, of salvation from our natural state. And when you hear and believe, you're in that place. That too is a gift of God. Faith itself is a gift to God. Ultimately, in even your response, God has been at work in your life to grant you faith to say, yes, I believe. And so if you're here with us today and you've not yet put your faith in Christ, it's real simple. Put your faith in Christ. Turn from those other things and trust Him. Receive this rescue. Receive all that He's done for you that you might be safe in Him. Truly, eternally safe. You simply need to believe. But we know that that power itself even comes from God and His wonderful grace for us. He saves us. He brings life to dead men and women. Changes us. Puts us in this new relationship with God. We are new creations in Him. Different motivations. Different perspectives. Clean. Forgiven. Empowered by the Spirit now to walk in the ways of God and grow ever more like Christ individually and together. But did you notice in the verse the verb tense for the word for save? Did you catch it as we went along? What sort of tense was it? And sorry for the grammar lesson, but in verses 5 and 8, if you could put that back up actually, verses the latter half of, chapter, of that section from chapter 2. Verses 5 and 8, where it uses the word save, does it say we will be saved? Does it say we might be saved? Does it say we used to be saved? It says no, we have been saved. We have been saved. It's a, uh, actually a past perfect participle. Um, and that's just a, a, a verb tense that means it already happened completely and, it, and we live in the state of completion. So we were saved. We were rescued. It's done. It's complete. We are now safe. It's it's a completed action. 
and we live in its reality. It's an ongoing reality. Guys, that's not just a grammar point there. God designed His Word and even chose the language it would be written in originally so He can make it very clear to us that for the believer, this is a present state of existence. You are safe in Jesus. The day you believe, you are safe. It's accomplished. It's done. You are safe that day. You are safe today. You are safe for the future as well. It's an eternal state of safety in Christ. And it's so important to understand that this is who you are in Christ. That's what this helmet of salvation is about, guys. Understanding that you are now eternally safe in Christ. And we see it in Ephesians, in the verb tenses, and all that He says here. We see it uh, in the rest of Scripture too. God wants us to know that this is true. Jesus Himself said this in John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Has passed. Is done with judgment and the old way and is now passed from death to life. Is saved. Jesus says that. Uh, John says in 1 John 5, and this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Who here believes in the name of the Son of God? These things are for you. This is written for you right here. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. God wants you to know it. He wants you to live in it. He doesn't want you questioning and wondering and hoping maybe I'm saved. He doesn't want you thinking about yourself as maybe I'm saved, maybe I'm not. He wants you to know. He wants you to live in it. He wants you to understand this is what He's done for you. You have eternal life. You are safe from the wrath of God right now. Safe in Him. Safe in Him from your greatest peril. Your greatest peril is, is not the political situation. Your greatest peril is not culture shifting. Your greatest peril is, is not want of material goods. Your greatest peril is, is not your job situation. Or whatever you might be thinking about, whatever you might be anxious about, your greatest peril is not those things. Your greatest peril is to, to stand before a holy, good God condemned, rightly so, for your choices, for your life. That's your greatest peril. There's nothing worse than to be separated from God and, and subject to judgment. And yet, in Christ, through simple faith in Christ, through what God Himself has done, when you believe, you are safe from that peril and you are eternally safe. You stand safe today, tomorrow, and for eternity. That's where you are and that's who you are. That's who you are. That's so important for us to understand. Guys, nothing else will grant us safety ultimately. No one else can save us eternally. Nothing else can grant that eternal safety. Homeland security cannot save you eternally. cannot provide eternal safety for you. The Republican Party, the Democratic Party, cannot provide eternal safety for you. 
Neither can libertarians or any other party. Technology can't save you. Culture offers no stability. Social media offers no true solace. Even your closest friends and relatives cannot guarantee you security. But in Christ, we are safe eternally. Saved from our greatest peril to live with God forever. So when you think about your life, what do you think about? How do you evaluate your own safety? How do you measure your life and your stability? Are, are there other things you're looking to to measure your life, to feel stable and secure? Are you feeling unstable? Are you afraid of the future? Put your trust in the One who holds your future and the One who offers you eternal safety. He offers us this helmet of salvation. It's for the believer to put it on. Yes, this is mine. I am safe in Jesus. Eternally safe. We're to measure our lives that way. And it's not just an idea of moving to point number two. It's not just an idea to be studied, but a truth to be remembered and an identity to be absorbed. We're to absorb it. We're to take it on. We're to, to remember it. That's why I believe Paul uses the metaphor of a helmet. A helmet protects the most vital part of our body, our head, our brain, and so forth. And it also serves as a way to identify ourselves. And both those functions occur with a helmet. Roman soldiers' helmets were distinctive and often would be decorated. Not because the decoration offered extra protection. Those little feather things like didn't stop any swords or anything. They were... They were to identify that, look, I am Rome. I am Rome. You're not just fighting anybody here. You're fighting Rome. A Roman soldier. That, that's part. It's an identity issue. It's not just real protection against a vital part of the body, though it is indeed that. It's also identity. It's also, it, it's also symbolizing who I am. And this idea of... of Remembering and absorbing salvation and, and understanding it as our identity is a theme throughout Ephesians. So this idea of the helmet fits in with what's going on in Ephesians. Throughout this letter, Paul's trying to remind the Ephesians, guys, this is who you are. This is what's happened for you. This is your identity. This is your life. And so he spends a lot of time in this letter, particularly in the front part, reminding them of who they are. The first chapter he's just celebrating all that they have in salvation and he prays for them in in verses 16 through 19 that that they would know more of what they have in him that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened that they might know what is the hope to which he's called you what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us to believe and then in chapter 3 verses 14 to 19 kind of more along that line he prays that, that, uh, that according to the rich of, riches of His glory, God may strengthen you to be strengthened, maybe, sorry, that you may be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. And these are believers who already have Christ, so that they might have a, a greater experience of Christ indwelling them, that they might be rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul understands that 
it's critical for the Ephesians to understand themselves and their life in line with salvation, in line with the Gospel. It's not merely to be an idea, but it's to be absorbed into their identity. And, and he goes on in the section on behavior to ground that in the same thing. Behavior is not grounded in, hey, here's the rule, just do it. Because it makes sense. Certainly it does make sense, and certainly we should just do it. But there's a deeper motivation. This is who you are. You are new creations in Christ. You're, you've been changed, radically changed. The old is gone. The old has died with Christ. The new has come. You're a new creation in Christ. You belong to Him. You live in the state of salvation. You are safe in Him. You belong to Him. This is who you are. So, live like He does. Corporately and individually. All the, all the behavior for the believer is grounded in who we are. It's grounded in our identity. And that identity is not a fantasy. It's the ultimate reality. Christ has died and risen and reigned. And all those who believe in Him are seated with Him in the heavenly realms. Right now, you belong to Him. And you are safe with Him. And this is who you are. And you will more and more gradually in life, and then ultimately when you go to be with Him, experience the fullness of that identity. All ethics for the Christian flows out of that. And so do you see how the helmet of salvation affects and reminds us of all this aspect of who we are? Both identity and behavior. You are to so connect yourselves to what Christ has done for you that it saturates every fiber of your being. Every thought of your mind. Every inclination of your will. Every perception of your world. We are to root our lives and our entire identity in the truth that we are totally forgiven and made into new creations reconciled to God. So it's to saturate all of us in every way. It's to be our identity. That we are rescued ones. We are safe ones. Ones who belong to the Lord. This is what we have. This is what's been done for us. But it's interesting in verse 17, it says, take up the helmet of salvation. Isn't that interesting? The word can also be translated, receive it. If it's already ours, then why do we got to put the helmet on? Isn't the helmet on us? Because that's who we are? Well, I think the verse is pointing at the side of the equation that's our responsibility. And we have to remember this is who we are. We have to actually choose, yes, this is who I am. I'm forgiven. Yes, I belong to Him. I'm called to holiness. Yes, He is in control of my future and all things. He's given me good works to do. I am now in this state of salvation. This is who I am. I'm going to put the helmet on and I'm going to live in, the, in this helmet. We have to choose to absorb these things into our identity. We have to develop habits where we remind ourselves and live in this. I think we get that metaphor of the helmet of salvation. I think we get the idea uh, of this idea of hats and how they represent things. We don't have a lot of people who are walking around wearing helmets these days. Um, but we get the idea of headgear and identity, right? If I stick this hat on my head, immediately you know what I'm saying, right? I'm part of Red Sox Nation. This is my team. I'm a New Englander. I'm a Bostonian. And, and sorry if you're not a Red Sox fan, um, 
I don't mean to insult you in any way, and even if you're a Yankees fan, we're going to love you. Uh, but if you're not a Red Sox fan, you probably even have certain perceptions of even who I am, what sort of person I am, right? Oh boy, Red Sox fan. I was liking this guy until he put on that hat. Isn't that interesting? All that's part of just putting on this little hat with the B on it. But we get that. We understand identity connected to headgear. And that's what this passage is talking about. So it is with the helmet of salvation. We ought to wear a helmet that embodies for us that we are eternally safe. We are part of the nation, God's nation, God's people. We belong to Him. We are safe in Him. This is who I am. I'm a, I'm a rescued one. I'm a new creation too. I'm being changed into the image of Christ. This is who I am. I'm to put on the helmet of salvation. So, let me ask you, what hat do you wear? What hat do you put on in the morning? What identity do you assume? What identity do you portray to others? What hat do you put on? What helmet protects your head? Because there's a function in this that, of spiritual protection in this identity, in this truth. How do you perceive yourself? How do you understand your identity? Is there some other identity or other choice that's displacing the helmet of salvation? Now, the reality is, guys, we struggle with this, right? We forget to put the hat on. We forget who we are. We put other hats on. But He's not left us alone. And we're not meant to do this alone. So, don't listen to this and don't read Ephesians 6 and think, you know, I just got to pick myself up by the bootstraps and put on the armor, you know, to man up and do it. There's a degree of choice and, and responsibility for sure, but it's always intended to be done together. That's why you're here right now listening to me tell you about this. That's why we have small groups in our church. We don't do it because it's kind of the coolest, latest thing. And though we don't, we don't require it of members, I really can't conceive of how you can live the Christian life without being part of a small group. So, it is your choice, but choose wisely. Be part of a small group because we need to remind each other of who we are. We need to remind each other of the fact that we're forgiven. We need to remind each other of what we're called to. We need to encourage and exhort each other to put on this helmet of salvation. So we as a church are structured this way. We, we form groups. We form relationships. We provide resources. Just a, a resource to point you to in our, in our library is the Gospel Primer. A great resource. Sorry if I got like bedhead at this point, hathead. But a great resource to remind us of this truth of the helmet of salvation. Finally, let me just cover really quickly. As we do this, we successfully resist evil. You see, the enemy is the accuser of the brethren. He wants to accuse you. He wants to accuse you of your faults, of your sins. He wants you to ground yourself in your failures and who you used to be. He wants you to come under condemnation and feel like a loser. No, I'm not saved. I mustn't be saved. I've messed up too many times to be saved. He wants you to, to start to, to be tempted to think that, you know, Maybe it is better just to go back to that old lifestyle. You know, maybe this sin is good stuff. He works in all these ways as an accuser and a tempter to draw us away from the Lord. But the helmet of salvation addresses these things because it reminds us, I am rescued. 
I'm not condemned. There's no condemnation for in Christ. Even though I may have failed today, I'm forgiven. I belong to Him. I'm free. And He's given me grace. And it reminds us that we belong to Him. We're new creations called to this new way of life. Wearing that helmet of salvation will make all the difference in spiritual warfare. Let me just give two quick examples and we'll, we'll conclude. But, and, and this is from the desire just to help you understand. These are made-up examples. But, but first, uh, fearful Fiona. Fearful Fiona wakes up during the night. She's anxious about her job. She's anxious, anxious about her bank account. She's anxious about her family. Anxious about her health. Anxious about being anxious. And her mind is caught up in one scenario of doom after another. How does the helmet of salvation help Fiona? Fearful Fiona. Well, it should remind her that the one situation that is really one to be anxious about, most significantly, has been entirely taken care of. If there's something to be anxious about, it's standing before the Lord, answering for our lives. That's all been taken care of. There's no more wrath. There's only forgiveness. There's love. And not only that, in that state of salvation, not only are all her sins taken care of and there's no reason to ultimately be anxious, but God is in control of her life now and promises to work all things for good and has given her good works to do. So He's in control of her life. So that state of salvation is a state of promise for her. And so now, as she reminds these things, herself of these things, she chooses to think about them instead of feeding her anxieties, things will change. As she comes to her small group and they pray for her, or her ladies' Bible study, and they pray for her and remind her of these promises, step by step, Fiona grows and displaces anxious thoughts with thanksgiving and prayers of faith. And she starts to really trust God and she starts to really sleep at night. And more than that, she's able to turn around and encourage others who would be tempted the same way. Tempted Tim is struggling with lust. He's been exposed to pornography over the course of his life. He has a whole data bank of twisted images that assault him. Not only that, but through the internet and the job place as well. He's assaulted. He struggles. What should he do? Should he keep giving in? I mean, he's already a failure. What's a little more fail, failure here? What does it matter? He's already messed up. But Tim taking up the helmet of salvation is reminded that he has something much better than failure. He has something much better than the old ways of greed, selfishness. He has forgiveness in Christ. Christ has paid for those sins, past, present, and even future ones. And the grace of Christ that He has overwhelms all trespasses. It overabounds. It superabounds over trespasses. So there's forgiveness. Those sins are nothing compared to grace. Salvation overwhelms, overcomes all that. And He has a new identity as a forgiven one and an empowered one. And so Tim goes to Saturday morning men's breakfast and confesses his sin. And his brothers say, you know what? It's been there. Struggled with the same thing. Let's come together. They pray for each other. They learn to put on the helmet of salvation together remind themselves, each one to another, who they are in Christ. And that God has something much better than the old way. And Tim steps by step resists and grows and changes and then in turn strengthens his brothers. That's how the helmet of salvation works. 
That's how this is supposed to work in our lives. And if the band could come up as we close. I could make up countless other scenarios that are real life type scenarios. In all of them though, we, the idea is to take up this helmet of salvation. To realize what we are. That we are eternally safe. We are new in Christ. To wear it on our heads. So I want us just, uh, before we close in song, just to quietly pray about two ways to apply this truth. Just one, where in your own life do you need to be taking up the helmet of salvation? What is tempting you, distracting you? How can you take this up? And how can you practically do it? Do you need to be part of a small group? Are you not? Are you on your own? Trying to put on your armor and fight your own battle? It just doesn't, doesn't make sense. So what do you need to do? And then second, is there someone around you who needs your help? Another believer who needs to be reminded of salvation that you can encourage. Or maybe someone who doesn't yet know Christ and is in that state of peril that you can pray for and extend salvation to. So just those two things. Let's pray about that. Respond to the Lord in prayer and then we'll respond in song as well. Take a minute to do that.